Please be seated. So we continue our sermon series on the book uh, by Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, on dethroning mammon. Mammon, which is that force for the generation of money and wealth. And uh, there's a time in a Christian's life when there is a flash of light, a sudden dawning, an epiphany that stops you in your tracks and brings you to your senses, and you realize, I see now that I will never be the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> and, uh, and I had such an epiphany uh, this week as I was reading the book, Dethroning Mammon, and the chapter entitled, What We Give, We Gain, the subject of today's sermon. His Grace, Justin Welby, in crafting that chapter, had summoned up his knowledge of uh, Keynesian theory of economics uh, to make his point, and it created the characters of Homo economicus and Homo financiaris uh, to, make, uh, to illustrate his thinking. I, on the other hand, had thought, I know, I'll start my sermon by sharing a Monty Python sketch about a merchant <laughs> banker. Enough said. And you're probably thinking, forget Archbishop. How on earth did he become a reader? <laughs> so in this Monty Python sketch, you can see John Cleese is the merchant banker there. And uh, I forget the other guy's name at the moment. Help me. No, no, it's not Eric Hines. Uh, anyway, uh, and the other one is Mr. Ford, who is a, a charity worker. And Mr. Ford is collecting money uh, for an orphan's charity. And he's shown into the office of this merchant banker. And Mr. Ford tries to persuade the banker to part with a pound for the orphans. And the banker asks how this loan of a pound will be secured. And Mr. Ford tells him, it isn't a loan, uh, but he gets a free sticker. And so John Cleese looks at the sticker and says, well, this is rather small for a share certificate, but I'll just take it to our legal department and I'll get back to you on Friday. And Mr. Ford explains the principle. No, it's not a share certificate. You give me a pound and then I go away and I give it to the orphans, he says. To which John Cleese replies, no, no, I don't follow at all. I mean, I don't want to seem stupid, but it looks to me as though I'm a pound down on the deal. What's my incentive? To which Mr. Ford explains, well, the incentive is to make the orphans happy. Happy? Are you sure you've got this right, says the banker? And so it goes on. And although it's exaggerated for effect, and it picks on merchant bankers, the sketch summarizes the basis of our industrial economy, doesn't it? Uh, in his book, uh, the Archbishop refers to this as exchange and equivalence a zero-sum approach in which what I give, I lose to your gain. Uh, the banker will not lend because he's not gaining anything from the transaction. You wouldn't purchase something without getting a deal, a good deal in return. It wouldn't make sense. So it's hard to comprehend why you would do that. Give a pound and get nothing in return. 
But in our story, our gospel reading today, nestling between the immense world-changing events of that first Easter, between the darkness of despair of the crucifixion and the light and hope of the resurrection is an often overlooked cameo that represents the human expression of the divine economy of God. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus retrieve the body of Jesus and bury it. It's an act not driven by the economics of exchange and equivalent. What benefit could they possibly derive from this act? Their act was rather purely driven by a sense of God's economy. What the Archbishop calls abundance and generosity. Abundance and generosity is an open system. One in which the creative power of God is active. One in which what we give, we gain. So let's take a closer look at the story of Joseph and Nicodemus to discover what was so extraordinary about their actions and how that works. The actions of Joseph are recorded in all four Gospels. He only appears in this story, though. But when you piece them together, you see the characteristics uh, and snippets of information by which we can construct a strong sense of the man. He was a good, upright man, Luke tells us. A rich man, writes Matthew, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. So Joseph was an honest, respected member of the community, wealthy enough not to have had to sully his hands by the hurried burying of a dead body. But more than this, Joseph was a prominent member of the Council of Jewish Leaders, the Sanhedrin, Mark tells us. So Joseph was a leader, highly regarded. He would have had a position of responsibility, an image and a reputation to maintain. However, Joseph was a principled man. He had been there on the day previously when the Sanhedrin had tried Jesus. But he disagreed with their decision about how Jesus should be crucified. In fact, that, the fact that Joseph didn't join those leaders in calling for Jesus' blood might have been a surprise to his peers. And later, on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, Joseph went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He went boldly, we read in Mark, but he went secretly, we read in John, because he feared the Jewish leaders. And I wonder why Joseph feared the Jewish leaders. Surely they would find out who had collected the body of Jesus. You see, the bodies of people who died as a result of crucifixion would normally be disposed of in a commoner's communal burial pit. So when word got around that Jesus had been buried in a tomb, then the leaders would almost certainly ask the questions, how and why had that happened? I think Joseph went in secret, fearfully, fearful that he might be discovered and that he might be stopped from completing his mission to give Jesus a respectful burial in line with the Jewish tradition, befitting a respected and loved person and not 
abandoned to a common grave. Joseph took the body and with the help of Nicodemus placed Jesus in a tomb and personally rolled the stone over the entrance. But it wasn't a normal tomb that was used and reused and housed several bodies. This was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, according to John. And more than that, according to Matthew, Joseph had intended that this would be his own tomb and that he had cut it from the rock. Joseph, rich as he was, could surely have chosen, uh, to, uh, could surely have chosen another tomb in which Jesus' body could be laid rather than use his own which was his choice place close to the city, newly hewn and prepared for him and his family. Joseph showed a remarkable generosity of spirit. Joseph acted in the realms of the divine economy. There was nothing to be gained by his gesture. Jesus was dead. There was nothing he could offer in return. As far as Joseph knew... Now that Jesus is, the promise of Jesus had been extinguished and he died the death of a criminal, there was nothing else to happen. Joseph's was an extravagant abundance of generosity to a dead person who, for all we know, he may never even have spoken to. But with his accomplice Nicodemus, through their actions, They were even compromising their position of power, running the risk of being reviled and rejected by their peers for what they'd done. So what of Nicodemus? Well, he was a Pharisee. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. But he was open-minded, respectful, and inquisitive about Jesus. John tells us that earlier in chapter 3 of his gospel, Nicodemus came to see Jesus secretively at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus went on to speak to him about being born again, born again through the waters of baptism and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we don't know how Nicodemus came to go with Joseph to collect the body of Jesus. But in doing so, he also showed extravagant and abundant generosity. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And with Joseph, the two of them wrapped Jesus' body using the spices and the strips of linen. Nicodemus had brought a back-breaking weight of spices sufficient for a king's burial to honor Jesus. And it's easy for us 2,000 years later with the benefit of hindsight and having seen how the story turns out to think, ah, yes, but it was the body of Jesus. Who would not have done that? But in that moment, when most of the other disciples had dispersed in abject despair, fear, or shame, these two secret disciples, who would nominally 
have been expected to be strongly opposed to Jesus, invested their wealth and their efforts and risked their reputation and standing to provide Jesus with a respectful burial. There could have been no expectation of any positive consequences. These men were truly giving out of a deep-rooted sense of respect for a leader whose time had seemingly passed. What did they gain then? If we say what we give, we gain in God's divine economy, then what benefits accrued uh, and multiplied according to their abundant generosity? Well, the clue was in the last of the few recorded words in Scripture that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus back in chapter 3 when he said, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And I just wonder, did Jesus know that three days before he was to be lifted up, this man, to whom he first revealed the very essence of his mission on earth, would be the man who would help collect his body from the cross and provide the spices and wrap his dead body in them. Jesus' Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus in the context of the whole story of Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, inspired John in retrospect to argue what is most, to, to write what is arguably the most famous and most powerful succinct exposition of Jesus' mission. When in the verse that followed that story, John Chapter 3.16, he wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that is God's extravagant abundance. That is God's divine economy. The story of Jesus' burial has been passed down primarily to emphasize the death and burial of Jesus, to rebut the claims of those at the time who said Jesus had not died. However, Joseph and Nicodemus, through their actions, when others had departed in despair, made that conclusion possible. Jesus' body was not disposed of by the Romans in a common grave from where the facts of Jesus' resurrection might have been disputed. Their actions provide the basis and the backdrop for the most transformative event in the history of mankind. The stone rolled away, the empty tomb, the strips of cloth and linen and the risen Jesus. We don't know 
how their abundant generosity accrued to them personally. We can only suppose they now reside with Jesus. But to Christians throughout the ages, their generosity is part of the foundation on which our faith has been constructed. And it's multiplied tens of millions of times. So what are the lessons for us? Well, Archbishop Welby encourages us to operate according to that divine economy, believing what we give, we gain, and to train ourselves to see the world as God sees it in terms of abundance and generosity. He encourages us to see weekly and monthly giving as a way to set our budget and effort, seeing generosity as an obligation rather than a luxury extra. And that's a challenging concept, isn't it? Seeing giving as an obligation. Why should we do this? Because through our use of money, we have the opportunity to emulate Joseph and Nicodemus Giving, generally, giving generously now and trusting God to use it to achieve eternal value. The possession of money represents a God-given opportunity to identify with people, to show solidarity, to transform the world for the better. We gain because we are establishing relationships we should see money as a way of building relationships with others, those that we love and those that we don't know, those that are so distant they have don't, don't have any value to us. Giving builds links between people whom we nev may never reach or meet in any other way. Giving brings us closer to people who are far away and creates spiritual bonds of mutual respect. We gain because though we never know how our gifts will impact people, we are showing compassion, love, and respect to others, whatever their circumstances. We're giving a message through our actions that they have worth, they have value, and we care. They may respond, they may not. But the message is delivered. In God's economy, value is set by the very fact that we give, especially when sacrificially. Joseph and Nicodemus made it clear by their investment of wealth and effort that Jesus was of a value that surpassed social status and indeed life itself. We gain because we're at one with God's children and at peace with the world in our giving. We're aligning and uniting with Jesus. We're saying, I put your interest before my own. We gain because psychologists have demonstrated that we are hardwired to be sympathetic and generous to others. And when we are so, it contributes greatly to our own happiness and self-worth. We gain through our selfless act because we are making an investment for God himself who is the master of the selfless act. 
being rooted in the love of God in Christ, we shouldn't seek to accumulate, but rather spend generously. And if necessary, like Joseph and Nicodemus, act at personal risk. This is the human equivalent of what God did for us when he sent Jesus to this earth to live amongst us and to die for us. The very body that Joseph and Nicodemus lavished their wealth and efforts on at some cost to themselves is the very body through which God lavished his wealth and effort on me, on you, on us, at the greatest cost to himself. We are who we are because of God's grace. Grace which is love given without expectation of return. Grace dethrones mammon. It's for us to shrug off the economy of equivalence which is so alien to God and to be extravagant in embracing the divine economy of abundance and generosity in return. Amen.